Or have you ever been homesick? Have you ever been homesick? Maybe uh, a little homesick uh, when you've been traveling and it's been longer than, you know, a few days. Uh, maybe you're at a conference or you have to go on a work trip and you're away from your family. Or maybe you've gone on school camps before and you get a little homesick. But some of you maybe really resonate with that video. You've been a lot homesick. Uh, you've migrated to another country. You know what it's feel like, it feels like to be in a completely different city. You've been an overseas or international student. You or your parents have moved entire continents. Well, the Bible says that this world, as it is, is not our home. And it's not just for Christians, not just that for followers of Jesus, it's not our home. In fact, for all people created in God's image, this is not our home. Even for those who don't follow Jesus, there is still a deep imprint of our original home in all of our hearts, every human heart. And that creates a longing that nothing in this world will ever satisfy. But if you're a follower of Jesus, the good news is that you are heading home. Because the picture at the end of the Bible is a picture of the home we were all created for. Now my goal this final talk is very simple. I want to get you homesick. I want to get you homesick for that home. The home you were created for. And if you can leave this weekend with a sense and a longing for home, then that would be mission accomplished. But because we are so far away from home, and home is going to be so much more than we can ever imagine, the Bible uses very highly symbolic language to describe this future home. Uh, it's called apocalyptic. If you like, apocalyptic language is more like an impressionistic painting than it is a photograph. It's to give you an impression. It's to describe things that are so hard to describe, but to bring out feelings. So we're going to look at uh, the final two chapters of the Bible to give you that picture of home. Now, and uh, the, the uh, reading is printed out for you, but it may even be more helpful for you to listen. Sometimes when we read, we, mo most of us read faster than we hear, and you kind of are skipping ahead. But to really get a sense of home, you might just want to listen as I read. So I'm going to read a fairly long chunk. And I want you, as I read it, not just to hear, listen, but to almost picture it if you can. That's what apocalyptic language is supposed to do. It's describing, painting pictures with words. Sort of like what Kenzie has been doing. Okay, let me read from Revelation 21. Feel free to just listen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit of a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide, he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we turn to this amazing part of your word, that you would give us in our hearts, our minds, our senses, a real deep longing and homesickness, and that we might live every single day until we get there in light of it. Holy Spirit, please speak through your word and through me to impress this on us. Amen. So if you want to follow on your outlines, uh, we are in page 23, no, no, 27, 27. So let me uh, start with the big picture and then we'll notice details. Genesis and Revelation are really like bookends of the Bible, aren't they? Right, when you read Je uh, Genesis and then you skip to Revelation, you see how much things are tied up. It's a little bit like Lord of the Rings. And actually any really good adventure, journey kind of movie or story, after everything is said and done, you return to home. You return to the Shire in the Lord of the Rings. Right? And, and the big word for that is the word recapitulation. To recapitulate is to go back to the beginning. And this is what the Bible's like. So Genesis opens with, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember talk one? Heaven here, sense one of heaven, is heaven as in the sky. Heaven and earth together means the whole creation, the whole visible creation. God created and God will renew. In Genesis 2, you've got the first marriage. Adam and Eve. In, Je in Revelation 21, you've got the final marriage. Jesus and his people. Right? It ends where it begins. Uh, there are other echoes of the beginning, of course. In Revelation 22, uh, this, this city, which we'll look at in more detail in a moment, is not just a city, it's a garden city, which reminds you of the garden. And, and there's the source of the water uh, that comes out of this city. The, the water... Like how Eden is described in Genesis 2. It's the source of forehead waters in Genesis 2. And also the idea of it being a source of life. You, you notice there, this tree, the tree of life, that was in the garden. But in the new creation, it's not just one tree. It's one tree on each side of the river, so presumably two trees. But it bears lots and lots of fruit. So very clearly, when we're talking about life eternal... We're talking about a return to life as it was meant to be lived, okay? It's that recapitulation, going back to the beginning. But it's not just the same as the beginning. If you like, this is Eden Plus or Eden 2.0. Now, I wonder if you've ever um, felt the post-holiday blues, right? Some of you have done some pretty cool international traveling recently. I've been living through your lives, Ken or um, others. Um, I don't know, how, how do you feel about that, that, you know, the last couple of days and it's just had a great time, it's almost over and you're about to get on the plane, except this time you're traveling, what, 20 hours on the plane and it's not going somewhere cool, it's going back to life. Um, that's called the post-holiday blues. And, and in this life, 
usually the greater the experience, the more we wish we could just hang on to it. it. And it's not even just a holiday. Ever been in a moment of life where there's just so much joy and you just wish it would go on? But with everything in life, you realize that nothing that you've enjoyed lasts forever. And nothing really satisfies forever. And it's, again, not just holidays. It's even achievements. You achieve something really great. You get to the top. You reach your goal. But then afterwards, it just feels a little bit hollow. Because was that it? Uh, You buy the latest thing that you've always wanted. Whatever it is. A gadget. a, A piece of clothing. A house even. A car. And then afterwards, you get another sense of, well, is that it? Do I need to now look for the next thing? Even love and relationships. Um, Karen and I remember this campsite. Why? Because there's this photo that we took when our Andrew, and he's not here, so I can talk about him. I mean, he's actually he is here. What am I talking about? Andrew here. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew, I'm going to talk about you. I owe you a milkshake. Um, Andrew was just a baby, sort of like Chloe's age. And he was uh, in the dining room, and the sunlight was streaming in the dining room, and we took this photo, and it was, he was just so cute, this little cute blonde baby. Um, I'm still wondering if he's mine. Um, <laughs> he's just far too good looking to be mine. Um, and he's just sitting there, super cute. And that's one of our memories of this campsite. And, and that image and that, that, that moment in history just brings so much joy. And now he's 13. Um, <laughs> And he's even more wonderful. (laughs) But even love and relationships. You know, the couple married for 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70 years. And and then you read about one one of them passing away and how sad the other... I mean, it's everything in life. You just can't grab hold of it because it doesn't last forever. Well, the Bible says there's a reason we have a thirst that can't be quenched. The author C.S. Lewis said, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Thought of that? Now, why is it these things don't satisfy? In this world, nothing can satisfy because we were made for another world. The new creation is our true home. The deepest longings of our hearts will finally and eternally be satisfied. And that's why there's so many images of satisfaction, marriage consummated, thirst quenched. That's what it's like to come home. Now, it's important to remember, especially if you weren't here with us yesterday, our eternal home is not going off to heaven when we die. Our eternal home is the new creation. It is physical. It is earthly. It's here in a renewed cosmos. It's not somewhere else up in the sky in some sort of spiritual floaty existence. It's not on another planet because we've wrecked planet Earth and we've had to abandon it to another. No, no, no. The Bible's talking about our home is not going to heaven, but it's actually heaven coming down to renew and transform this earth. That's home. Now, at this point, it's important to distinguish what we call the intermediate state and the final state. Or in other words, where we go immediately after we die versus where we will be in our final, final, eternal state. So where do we go immediately after we die? If you are a follower of Jesus, you go to be with God immediately 
and it is in heaven. Okay, so not entirely untrue that we go to heaven when we die, because it is true. We go to be with God in the God dimension in heaven. When a Christian passes away, there will be a temporary separation between body and soul, and you will go to be with God in heaven. But that's not your final destination. It's intermediate. You're still waiting. What are you waiting for? You're waiting for Jesus to one day return to judge. Then our eternal destinies will be locked in. So let me show you the passage actually just before um, the bit we read. Is this working? In Revelation chapter 20, just a few verses before 21, let me read this out. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, remember that's the intermediate state for unbelievers, Hades, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, Jesus will return to judge. That's still in the future. And then all those who have already gone to be with Jesus, who are already dead, will be raised. Those who are still alive when Jesus returns will be immediately facing judgment without dying first. But then after judgment, you see the separation will be complete, eternal. For those who are not followers of Jesus, the separation is final and they will be cast into hell. Or as yesterday we talked about Gehenna, hell, forever. Now, I spoke a lot about hell yesterday. And if you weren't here, um, I think we recorded the talk, so please catch up on it. But even if you were here, Please, if you are not a follower of Jesus, just remember, God is very patient with you now. But there will be a day when the eternal destinies will be locked in forever. So while you have a chance, even this weekend, will you turn to Jesus and be saved? Because as I said yesterday, no one needs to go to hell. But for those in the book of life, we read, those who are followers of Jesus, whose sins are forgiven... What will happen to us? Well, we will be given new bodies. If you are still alive when Jesus returns, it's an instant transformation. But for the majority of people who have died and have gone to be with God in the intermediate state in heaven, they will be raised again with new bodies, right? Or if you like, souls and bodies will be rejoined as they were intended to, but in new creation bodies to live forever in the new creation. All right. So that's point number one. That's our home. But let's go back into a little bit more detail into this passage, Revelation 21, and you'll see that it's meant to picture a reversal of the curse. It's the return to life before the sin and curse and exile happen in Eden. Um, and a nice way it captures it is in chapter 22, verse 3, towards the end of our passage, simply says, there will no longer be any curse. What a nice way of capturing all that's been undone, all that's become untrue due to sin. So uh, verse 1, you'll notice in chapter 21, do you notice that little detail? There was no longer any sea that turned up in our, um, um, our trivia night last night, right? 
No longer any sea. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, this is a bummer. I was looking forward to enjoying the beach for all eternity and having a surf or... Well, don't take it literally. Remember, the sea is metaphoric, as is everything in these chapters. In the Bible, the sea is often the place of chaos and evil. And in fact, drowning is sometimes a picture of going down into death or Hades or Sheol in the Old Testament. So no sea is everything being brought back to order. All fear gone, all chaos, all evil, no more. That's what it symbolizes. I suspect there'll still be oceans and water and sea and all that nice stuff we enjoy. And so other elements of the fall and the curse are also going to be reversed. And you'll see there under points A, B, and C of point two, all the terrible S's will be gone. So firstly, suffering and sadness. Verse 4 of chapter 21, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. I don't think there's a single person, especially a single adult here, who hasn't cried at some point at the sheer amount of brokenness and pain in life. I mean, even my kids, even my youngest kids have shed tears at funerals. In this life, there are so many sources of pain and tears. Some of you experiencing right now, maybe they're unspoken and especially painful because no one really understands you. Or whether they're tears of grief and loss, whether they are tears of frustration or anger at injustice, whether they're tears over regret because you've lost opportunities, whether they're tears from physical, mental, or emotional pain, whether they're tears from guilt or shame or sorrow over how sinful you are still, or when you get into the new creation, you might still have a few of those tears lingering on your cheeks. I can imagine that might be the case. But then, when you see Jesus, He will come to you. And like those very broken people who met Him during the course of His earthly life, the lepers, you remember those guys, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Zacchaeuses, the Samaritan woman at the well we looked at at church a couple weeks ago, Jairus, whose daughter died, the woman with the bleeding problem, his own disciples, or like those people who came to Jesus, well, Jesus will also come to you and he will comfort you. And with his nail-scarred hands, he will personally wipe those lingering tears from your eyes. There'll be no more suffering and no more sadness, but also no more sin. Yeah, uh, the great early church theologian Augustine said that before someone is converted, a person is not able not to sin. Right? Not able not to sin. Now, he's not saying that non-Christians can't do any good, but his point is that everything a person does before they meet Jesus in a personal way comes out of a position of being a rebel. You are out of relationship with God. So you do good, but it's a little bit like a pirate who's a really great sailor. He does a great job as a sailor, but quite frankly, the pirate belongs to the wrong side. And so Augustine says, you are not able not to sin. But he also said that in the future, in the new creation, you will not be able to sin. Okay? Before, 
not able not to sin in the future, not able to sin. When we get to the new creation, when we get home, sin will literally be a thing of the past. Now you might be thinking, how is it possible for us to be there still, you know, not robots, still with free will like we were in the garden and yet not be able to sin for all eternity? Well, I wonder how many people here have heard of the term house party. House party is actually what we're doing here. It's an old term. So people like Brian and myself, um, Karen, we still call it house parties. I don't know, Marshall, did you ever call it house parties? Yeah, house parties, right? House parties are weekend away, church camps. But you see, I don't know why they're called house parties. That's probably why we dropped the name because it's neither at a house nor is it a party. Um, except for those of you who were making too much noise last night when I was trying to sleep. <laughs> I don't know who you are, but Jesus knows. Um, uh, anyway, there used to be this thing that we called, uh, talked about called the house party high, Right? You go to, and, and I used to I used to every year go to a youth camp that my church would run. Um, house parties we used to run as a youth. You can figure out which one I am. That was when I was in year seven. And um, look, I was having so much fun. Um, and we used to have this house party high, and that is after after a house party, after a weekend away where you grow lots and learn lots for about. Two or three weeks, like you're reading the Bible every day and you're like just so, 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 so on a spiritual high. Um, you know, everything kind of in your Christian life is, is, is on a roll. Um, and, and it's not just at house parties, but um, anytime you have a powerful experience of, of closeness with God or communion with God. I don't know if you've experienced this as a, as a follower of Jesus. It, it reduces the power of sin in your life, doesn't it? Like we, we used to come from house parties and we would be like extra cool with our parents and extra nice to people. And, and it wasn't just put on. You genuinely felt like I've, I've been engaged with God and now I don't want to sin as much. Now that eventually wore off after about two or three weeks. And you probably have that experience. When you have a powerful communion with God experience, whether it's in worship or conference or just it's in some sort of time in your life, it does reduce the enticement of sin, doesn't it? Sin just doesn't appeal to you as much anymore. Those struggles aren't as strong anymore, even if they eventually fade. Well, you know what? In the new creation, we will see God and be in His presence forever. And I take it that's why we will not be able to sin. Because as powerful as those little earthly communion, we're still at a distance with God. We don't see Him face to face in all of His glory. Can you imagine being in the presence of God for all eternity and sin having any appeal whatsoever? It won't. Plus, the new creation is described as the place where the presence of sin is completely gone. It's on the outside. Now, I don't know if you know Joni Erickson. Joni Erickson is a famous Christian writer, author. Um, she's a quadriplegic. She became one when she was a teenager. And it's really interesting when she writes about what she is looking forward to the most. That's Joni. You would think as a quadriplegic, she wants to be able to walk in her new body, which she does. But look what she says. I can't wait to be clothed in righteousness without a trace of sin. That's what she's looking forward to. Yes, it'll be wonderful to stand, stretch, and reach the sky. But it'll be more wonderful to offer praise that is pure and won't be crippled by distractions, disabled by insincerity, handicapped by a ho-hum half-heartedness. Now my joy will join with yours and we will bubble over with effervescent adoration, finally able to worship with the Father and the Son for me 
This is the best part of heaven. A person who has not walked for decades would rather look forward to most not being able to sin. And that's what the new creation will be like. And the last S that will not be in the new creation is separation. Because finally, like in the Garden of Eden, death itself will die. Remember, death is part of the curse. Death is part of punishment for sin. And the punishment for sin, whether it's physical or spiritual, is separation. It's being away from God's presence. We talked about that yesterday. It's being away from life, away from blessing. Death is the ultimate separation, is it not? Well, when we get home in the new creation, we will be raised bodily like Jesus is. In 1 Corinthians 15, the big chapter on the resurrection. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In this life, from the moment you are born, you're already marching towards death. Right? Death is the other side of the coin for every activity you do. And that's why we can never fully be satisfied. Because death lurks around every corner. It is the night to every day. It is the shadow in every sunshine. Well, not in our future life. With our resurrection bodies, all death, all traces of death, and that includes sickness, it includes deterioration of our bodies, weaknesses, this stupid condition called gout, <laughs> aging, glasses, everything that's a reminder of deterioration, entropy, death, all of that will be gone. No more separation. Now, as amazing as all of this is, the curse reversed, here is the best part. I'm up to my third point. The new creation fulfills God's original plan. Remember talk one? His plan is that heaven would come and be part of earth. And his plan was that his dwelling would be right in the midst of his people. Remember that Eden was supposed to be heaven on earth in Genesis 1 and 2. The garden was the first temple. Eden was the holy of holies. And God's intention, as I said yesterday, was that this earth would be populated by God's people and that starting from Eden, this temple would fill the whole earth. Now, sin derailed that plan, but God kept hinting at restoring that vision. So in the Old Testament, as we saw yesterday, the tabernacle, the portable temple in the desert, and then later the temple in Jerusalem was to restore that original vision for God to actually dwell in the midst of His people. The Old Testament temple, when you look at the, the, um, the architecture and you read about it, it's modeled after God's sanctuary in heaven. Heaven as in God's dimension where He rules. The real Holy of Holies, well, the earthly temple, the Old Testament, was supposed to be a little micro um, a model of that. Like Eden, it was supposed to bring a little bit of heaven to earth. Well, in the new creation here in Revelation 21 and 22, that plan is finally fulfilled. And so you'll notice we have here not a garden really, but a city. It's the new Jerusalem. Now, city implies all sorts of things like security 
and the, 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 you know, the fact that you don't have to close the gates because it's so secure and there's no night on the outside and the walls are this thick, all of that. I won't go into that. The new city also implies a population, right? Unlike the garden with a couple of people, it's, it's now populated by lots and lots of people. But um, I want you to notice some of the other details. Do you notice this city isn't just part of the new creation? This city is the new creation. Right? Apocalyptic literature likes to do that. It mixes metaphors, things that you think can't belong together, but they just put it together. The city is the new creation, or the new creation is a massive city. Here's my Star Wars illustration. It's like Coruscant. Coruscant, okay, only some of you know Coruscant in Star Wars. The whole planet is one massive city. All right, there you go. There's my Star Wars illustration. All right, the new creation is a massive city. And then if you go into the details, verses 15 and 21, the city walls are described. Now, this wall is huge. Right? Each side of the wall is 12,000 stadia. That's 2.2, no, it's 2,200 kilometers. So that's Newcastle, which is a couple of hours north of here. Newcastle to Cairns is 2,200 kilometers. That's how big one side of the wall is. But more importantly is in its length, because even that's not the size of the whole earth, we know. But to, even now, but especially to ancients, that was just huge. They didn't know how big the world was back then, did they? All right. But, you know, this is a huge wall. But more importantly, it's, it's dimensions. Did you notice? It's a perfect cube. It's a perfect cube. The height equals the width equals the length. And it's made of pure gold. And then you read about its 12 foundations are covered with 12 precious stones written on them the names of the 12 apostles. Now, it's hard enough to picture, but if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that these come exactly from Old Testament temple imagery. You see, in the Old Testament, there was one structure that was a perfect cube that was made of pure gold. It was the Holy of Holies in the temple. When the Holy of Holies was described in 1 Kings 6, it's a perfect cube made of pure gold. Now, what we have here is the entire city is a perfect cube made of gold. The whole city is the Holy of Holies. That's what it's saying. Now, in the Old Testament also, a temple, the high priest wore special clothing. Most elaborate piece of clothing they have was a piece worn over their chest. It's in Exodus 39 if you want the reference, but you don't have to turn to it. On this elaborate chest piece is what? A perfect square, four rows of 12 precious stones. Which stones? Those stones in Revelation 21. And on each stone it is engraved one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But now it's not this centerpiece on the high priest's clothing. It is the city. It's the foundation of the city. So what it's saying is what used to be just for the high priest only is now the whole city. So you see what it's trying to say. This new creation, this new Jerusalem is not only the holy of holies. It is also the place where the entire people of God become the high priesthood. The entire people of God become priests. And that's why for all its temple image, you'll also notice, quite ironically, there is no temple. All right, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Well, you don't need a temple within the city when the whole city is now a temple. Now, all of this is to paint the extraordinary image that what's going to be the most amazing part of this new creation is that God is there. 
is that God is there. You see, if I asked you the question, how would you honestly answer it? The question, what are you looking forward to most in heaven or the new creation? What are you looking forward to most? I mean, there are so many things to look forward to, right? So many of which we've talked about today. The, the, just, all those S's gone, right? Enjoyment of pleasure and satisfaction forever. But you know, your ultimate answer to that question will show if you really get it. If you really get Revelation 21 and 22. Because here it is, the most central part of the new creation isn't the blessings of God, but God Himself. You got that? The most extraordinary thing that holds everything together that you would enjoy and love the most is that God Himself is there. And I wonder if, as we think about the future, is that what we desperately really long for? Because sometimes, I don't know about you, I think I love the gifts more than I love the giver. Sometimes I love God's blessings more than I love God Himself. And that's crazy, isn't it? Pastor John Piper gives this illustration. So you give your fiancé a beautiful diamond ring. And she spends the rest of the night and the following weeks bragging about this gift. Girls, you would never do that, right? She takes it and shows it to everybody. But she never calls you. She never looks at you. She never takes you by the hand and looks you in the eye. She's just thrilled with this diamond. But your intent in giving her that ring was totally missed. How would you feel about that? No, you wanted her to look at it. Oh yes, you wanted her to love it. You wanted her to be thankful for it. You wanted her to enjoy it. And then you wanted her to put it on her hand, take your hand across the table and look you in the eye and say, I would love to spend the rest of my life with you. You are 10,000 times more precious to me than this beautiful ring. Do we often trade the joy of the giver for his gifts? Because in the new creation, we will have him forever. It's far better than anything else that we might look forward to. The dwelling of God will be with his people. That's what we should be looking forward to. Uh, look again at verse 3 to 5 of chapter 22, the end section there. Let these words wash over you afresh. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His names will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Well, to wrap the entire three talks up, my challenge is this. Invest in the here and now in light of the future. Seems pretty simple. You see, heaven has a currency. And it's a different currency to earth. When Jesus returns, heaven's currency is the only currency that counts for anything. So if you're a smart investor, what do you do? You buy up now. Do you know the New Testament talks about rewards? in heaven or rewards in the coming age. Now, we discussed this on Friday night, if you were here. It's not about being saved by works. It's not about working for your salvation. Salvation is completely by grace. 
In fact, the rewards are completely by grace too. They aren't deserved. Any reward is also a gift. But like there will be different degrees of punishment in hell that we talked about yesterday, there are also going to be different degrees of rewards in the new creation. There's lots of Bible passages about that. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus' parables, and on it goes. Now, we're going to be careful, though. This does not mean that some people will be looking at others in the new creation and go, oh, gosh, I wish I had yours. Because everyone will be perfectly happy because there's no envy or jealousy. There's no regret, regret or sense of loss. Okay, there's not going to be that. But there are differing rewards. That's what the Bible teaches. So how do we make sense of it? Well, I'm not really sure, okay? We're going to find out exactly what it is when we get there. But I think there are hints. And I think essentially is this. The more that you invest in the things of heaven now, the more you'll enjoy the new creation when heaven comes to earth. I'll say it again. The more you invest in the things of heaven now, the more you'll enjoy the new creation when heaven comes to earth. That makes sense, doesn't it? Let me me show you in three ways that you can apply this. People, perseverance, and presence. You see, the more that you spend your life investing in people's eternities now, the more that you will love seeing the fruit of your labor in the future. I mean, that makes sense, right? There's so much is not going to get into the new creation. But people will. And so whether it's evangelism or caring and loving people or helping people grow in maturity or showing compassion to people or raising your kids, Or praying for people. Like imagine getting to new creation. And then people are coming up to you and they go, Hey, you're Kenzie, right? Oh, you didn't know this, but you know, you were friends with a friend of mine. And this friend of mine became a Christian through you. And I became a Christian through them. Just wanted to say thanks. Or go up to Jason and go, Hey, you know what? You don't know this, but you prayed for me. And God answered that prayer. Or they go to Sally and go, Hey, you didn't know this, but every time that you had a chat to me out of compassion because I was struggling. Well, all of that helped me want to become a Christian one day. And, and you didn't know this, but I actually did become a Christian. You're like, how cool will it be to spend eternity meeting people and enjoying their stories and know that somehow you played a part in that? So when you invest in people, those of you who are struggling with young kids, parents, you're like, is it ever going anywhere? Imagine someone coming up to you and go, hey, you know what? Because you raised your kids a certain way and they raised their kids a certain way, well, your grandson ended up preaching the gospel to me and I became a Christian. So thanks. Right? Invest in people because they will amplify your joy in the new creation. What about perseverance? The more you hang on to Jesus now in the midst of suffering, and whether this suffering comes from persecution or pain internally, Or maybe it's just that you're fighting to be godly and daily battling temptation and repenting over sin. And that's hard, but you're just going to keep sticking at being a Christian rather than give up. Well, the more you do that now, the greater your joy will be when Jesus returns. And he does wipe every tear from your eye and every struggle will be gone. I mean, it's like fitness training, right? I hear. Um, The greater the pain, isn't it true? The greater the reward. You stick with it in the pain the reward is that much sweeter. So persevere. And last of all, the presence of God, in brackets. This is probably the most important. The more that we cultivate intimacy with God, the more that you spend this life in His Word, enjoying prayer and worship with Him, 
commune with Him, listening to Him, keeping in step with Him in your daily walk, the more you're going to love spending eternity with Him. I mean, imagine a couple who have a long-distance relationship and are finally united. How much sweeter the reunion for the couple who spends their time away from each other, writing to each other, messaging each other, talking to each other, growing in their love for each other. It makes the reunion that much sweeter, doesn't it? Well, same with presence of God. Cultivate that. Let me end. I'll get the band to come up. We're going to sing in a moment. Jonathan Edwards wrote, and I hope to finish with this picture that he paints. He actually um, said this, I wrote this at the uh, funeral of a dear friend of his. He says, Oh, how infinitely great will be the privilege and happiness of those who at that time shall go to be with Christ in his glory, where he sits on the throne as the King of angels and the God of the universe. Shining forth as the sun of that world of glory. There most freely and intimately to converse with him. And fully to enjoy his love as his friends and brethren. There to share with him in the infinite pleasure and joy which he has in the enjoyment of his father. There to sit with him on his throne. To reign with him in the possession of all things. And to join with him in joyful songs of praise to his Father and our Father, to his God and our God forever and ever and ever. Amen.